Norm Bossert, it's been about two years since we've spoken. You're a Democratic candidate for the 48th district uh, mm-hmm. for the Senate. Uh, you'll be challenging Chuck Edwards for the second time. Is that the second time? Second time. Yeah. And uh, well, um, before we kind of introduced you to listeners, we should probably do that again. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I have just retired after a 44-year career as a professional educator and school administrator. Uh, For the last 11 years, I was the principal of Black Mountain Elementary School, but I retired in June of 2016, so I've had a year off. And I've been so miserable being away from my school that I did something that a lot of people would think is abnormal. I started the substitute teaching. (laughs) Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, I needed a fix. I really miss the kids. I miss the schools. uh, And I've had a really good time doing that. The good news about it is I get to work when I want to. Uh, the phone rings every day looking for substitutes every single day of the week. But I only pick up when I want to and when I'm in the right frame of mind to uh, go into a school. I see. And are you subbing at the school that you used to principal for? No. Okay. No, I thought that would be unwise. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how that would go over with the community. But, you know, in this campaign, uh, I hear from people in the Black Mountain community all the time where I worked and uh, – Lots of them have donated to my campaign, and I get lots of nice Facebook postings from uh, some of the parents of the kids I had. Mm-hmm. So I'm still sort of in touch with the Black Mountain community pretty well. Uh, in fact, my coordinator for our activities here in Buncombe County actually lives in Black Mountain. Can't vote for me, but she's out working for me all the time. We used to work in Black Mountain. I know you live in Brevard. Is that still in, current? live in yeah. Pisgah Forest, actually, about two miles from the center of Brevard. Okay. And tell me a little bit about the 48th District. I know uh, part of it, a sliver of it hits Asheville. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so it's that, but it's also Transylvania County and Buncombe County. So, yes. Yeah. Well, it, it does. It's all of Henderson County, all of Buncombe County. And if you think of the map of Buncombe County, it's sort of everything west of 74 and south of 40. And that's that's a pretty good approximate, approximation for where where this district actually lies. I see. And the district's an interesting one. Uh, We've got, of course, city life going on here in Arden and Fletcher and uh, uh, South Asheville, of course. In addition to that, uh, in Henderson County, we've got a lot of uh, not only small businesses, but also some growing industry, uh, growing population. Uh, People who, frankly, can't afford to live up in Asheville are happy to commute to some very good jobs in Asheville from Henderson County. So that's a help for uh, for Henderson to uh, grow. And uh, Transylvania County is pretty much the same as it was. We have uh, just had a wonderful uh, business come to town. Uh, they're building campers there, and they've got a new industrial building that they're putting up on Acousta Road. So some good things are happening there. Uh, got great schools in all three communities. We've got uh, wonderful school leadership. Uh, Jeff McDarris, the superintendent in uh, in Transylvania County is is wonderful and is doing a great job there. My friend Bo Caldwell is the superintendent in Henderson County. And he was the first guy who hired me here in western North Carolina. I came from overseas. And um, he was kind enough to take a chance on me. Uh, funny stories about that you probably don't want to hear. But, <laughs> but Where did you come from before? I came from yeah. Belgium. I had been oh, okay. working on a mili- an American military base for 15 years as a teacher for military dependents. I see. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you the story. You can, you can use it or not. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. But the yeah. story was kind of acute. When I showed up for an interview, uh, he called me in Europe and asked if I'd come in for an interview. And I said, well, you know, I'm in Europe. Can we do a telephone interview? And I, uh, the director of personnel absolutely refused. He said, no, you'll have to come here if you want an interview. So it was about two weeks before the start of the school year in Belgium. And uh, I said, okay. So I got an airplane and I flew over here. And the interview was hilarious. I mean, I, I was there with Bo, uh, with David Jones, and with Joe Tamer, uh, three administrators in uh, Henderson County Schools. And we got to the subject of how you handle discipline. And he said, well, how did you handle it overseas? And I said, well, you know, when you're on a military base, discipline's really very easy. Yeah. I said, why is that? And he said, well, I'll tell you, Mr. Caldwell, when you're overseas, if you really have a problem getting a parent in or getting a child some help, all you have to do is call the commanding officer. Mm. And they show up. <laughs> and they yeah. do pretty much what you need them to do. And uh, he, so, so Bo said, well, what do you mean by a commanding officer? Well, usually a general or a, a colonel or something like that somebody of that rank. And he said, well, we don't have any generals here in Henderson County schools. Yeah. So you're going to have to figure out how to discipline on your own. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah, yeah. But I never really had a problem with that. But it was it was a, sort of a funny moment. Uh, it's different, certainly, than my experience overseas where everybody was uh, 
always able to call on the chain of command to get problems solved. Yeah. So military service is kind of a family thing, it sounds like. You had a son, uh, you mentioned yes. last time, who served as yeah, well. Yeah, my son served for 12 years in the United States Army. He was, did infantry, did some time in Afghanistan, some time in Iraq, uh, some time in Kuwait, uh, did some drug interdiction missions missions in Central and South America. But the thing I was most proud of is he was a guard of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Washington. Oh, wow. And uh, I got to be there just by accident. That, that time when I interviewed for my job, I landed in Washington and went to get a car to drive down, rent a car. And I thought I'd stop off to see if he was at the tomb. And I don't know if you know this, but there are all these catacombs underneath the tomb. And I see, that's yeah. where the soldiers who serve there actually spend their days and nights mostly. And I got to watch him take his first official walk uh, up there, which, uh, which is apparently tremendously complicated because you have to spend weeks and weeks and weeks learning everything. And they don't just teach you how to take the walk. They teach you how to talk to the tourists when they're misbehaving or being oh, disrespectful. Yeah. And you have to memorize all the different things, all the headstones of all these famous people like Audie Murphy and others who are buried there. Wow. And so he had uh, he had the opportunity to do that. And one thing these tomb guards do is they do they do organized tours of the cemetery, too. So they have to be able to tell people about who's buried where and, and what their history was and what their, you know, the entombed person's life story was. Wow. So pretty it's involved. Pretty, it's, it's very involved. A lot of people don't know that about them. Um, he also had fun working in the Clinton White House a little bit. He got to hold the umbrella when they were getting in out of the car when it was raining. Oh, wow. Was very, very good. So he got to meet Hillary and Bill Clinton uh, on that uh, that opportunity. I mean, it was a good one for him. Yeah. And what he commented, I mean, because he didn't talk about all the stuff he, he saw and heard because it was probably inappropriate to tell me everything. Uh-huh. But he did tell me that Bill Clinton had an incredible memory. That one time Bill Clinton was out running, sort of, with his unit over at Fort Myers, I believe. And they had to go real slow, but uh, Bill Clinton was running right next to him, and I asked him questions about his family, about me, about my wife, who we were, what our names were, where we were living, what we were doing. And then he didn't see Aaron again, my son Aaron, again for six or seven months, and they were out running. And Aaron said he ran up next to him, and he started asking questions. How's your, how's your father Norm doing down in, in North Carolina now? Is that right? And, and, and mom is what she, and he remembered everybody's name and all these details of our lives. That's incredible. That Aaron shared with him while they were running. Well, a six month break with all the people a president sees. I thought that was incredible. Wow. I wish I had that gift. I have trouble remembering people's names after yeah. I meet them. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's an issue for me. But for Bill Clinton, it was, a, it was an easy thing to do. Wow, that's amazing. Wow, yeah. incredible. So, uh, so, well, again, two years since we spoke in. Yes. So we've got two years of actions from the legislature from which to survey and, and, <laughs> and look at what they've done. Uh, what do you think about what the legislature's been doing for the past two years? Well, just in the broadest sense, I feel like what they've been doing is consolidating power in the legislature, and okay. in, in particular in their party. I'm not quite sure I understand all the whys. I don't understand all the reasons that they're doing the things they're doing. But they seem to be very involved, including with uh, some of these new amendments. It seems to be they're very engaged in making themselves more powerful as a unit of government than either the judiciary or the governor's office. So our executive is getting weaker, our judiciary is getting weaker, and our legislature is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. I don't know how that's going to play out in the long run, mm-hmm. but I don't see it as good governance, and I don't, see it as a, I don't see it as a way to bring checks and balances into the statewide scene, so to speak. I see. Courts have been a pretty consistent check on the legislature. They've lost a number of lawsuits, but it seems like, you know, and the reason why I called you in for the interview is our ballot is finally done, I think. So we think. We, 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 Who so, knows what tomorrow will bring. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But uh, so so we've yeah. we finally got a ballot where we know we were going to be likely voting on six amendments. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, four of those were challenged. Um one specifically deals with uh, the powers of the legislature over the governor um, and stripping some of those powers, or maybe it's two of them that actually do that. Well, I guess comment on uh, some of those uh, some of those amendments, if you could, because I think that you know uh, one one of the big things about this election is going to be those amendments. Uh, we've got one where 
basically the legislature gets more appointment powers over uh, judicial vacancies yeah. and uh, also over the state board of elections. So taking that one specifically, and that one was challenged. Yes, but and the challenges have ultimately failed. I mean, uh, they went back and they called a special session. They quickly tried to reword those amendments that you're speaking of. Mm-hmm. And uh, the courts, I think, as of, I don't know if it was this morning or yesterday late, I'm not yeah. sure which, but I read about it this morning for the first time, uh, basically have upheld those amendments appearing on the ballot. Yeah. My, my concern about the amendments is, is multifold, but, but probably one of the biggest concerns I have is that uh, the plan for the Republican legislature is hopefully to get all of those amendments approved by the voters. I'll talk about that in a second, but, but uh, you know, in a historical sense. But let's say they get them all done. Then they want to come back and have a lame duck session. And in the lame duck session, they will actually then define what those amendments really mean. Yeah. So we're sending people to the polls to vote on six amendments when we don't really know the implications of those amendments yet. I think that shows a, a tremendous amount of distrust in the citizenry mm-hmm. to make decisions about what will work and what won't. If they don't know the whole picture, how can they make a, a good decision at the polls? Yeah. So that's uh, that's one of the things that concerns me about them. Uh, a lot of people feel like these uh, these amendments are more about getting you know ginning up the base and getting Republicans out to the polls to uh, to support them. I can't see a single one of them. And I'm thinking if, if people could see me, they'd see my brain was steaming up here. I can't think of a single one of them that ultimately serves any real purpose that isn't already met by the law or that couldn't be made by couldn't be met by bills that could be written up. And so I'm wondering why they're tampering with a document like you know in such a cavalier fashion. I see, like yeah. the Constitution, that concerns me. Now my studies tell me that historically. Amendments don't do that well in North Carolina, that the electorate tends not to vote for them. I think uh, some 70% of them have failed to pass over the, over many years now. And that's uh, that's not a great success ratio, but maybe by throwing six out there, they're thinking they'll pick up a couple. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. And I just don't see a need for any of them. You had talked about how, you know, uh, we're going to vote on them and then uh, they're going to come back in a lame duck session and kind of define them. Probably the glaring example of that is the voter ID bill, because we're not going to know what forms of ID are going to be accepted yeah. um, afterwards. Um, uh, so... As far as voter ID, this has been something that's been a debate over a long period of time in North Carolina. And the courts, of course, came down and and said uh, the voter ID law that they passed in, I think, 2013 was too restrictive and too geared towards African-American voters, or at least uh, according to the court. Is this just another try at the same bill, essentially? Well, I think so. I think they've tried to make it more palatable. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think they're coming at this in the same fashion. Uh, I think the danger here is that some of our elderly people will have trouble getting some kind of photo ID, uh, especially if it's if they have to stand in line of three hours at DMV to get right, it. Right, right. Um, and then also uh, people of color, we feel like, uh, are going to be discriminated against uh, with this, again, because of the difficulty getting the ID. So those are two things that I, I think about when I look at voter ID. What really is the purpose? I was at the Apple Festival for the weekend. Mostly when you're at the Apple Festival, you know, Democrats come to the Democrat booth and they talk to you. But every so often a Republican uh, person comes up and wants to to ask questions or to challenge your opinions or they don't like the bumper stickers you've got sitting out, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like that, and they have an opinion about it. But I had a really, really nice conversation with a Republican from Haywood County. And uh, he just said, look, I, I want to be friendly and just ask you some questions. And he asked me, and one of them had to do with voter ID. And he just doesn't get... I mean, for, from his perspective, he doesn't get what the problem with that showing a, a photo ID is to mm-hmm. vote. And I said, well, you know, to, to register to vote in North Carolina, you have to provide identification. You can't just walk in and say, my name is, is whatever, and you, you have to be able to prove who you are. So at the registration table, when, when they go into DMV or someplace else, they've got to be able to prove who they are. They've got to be able to show that they have an address. Uh, so those two things are dealt with right there. We don't need to deal with them at the polls. That's number one. The second part is is that we have a lot of citizens in our state who might not be able to get a photo ID. 
uh, they might not be able to track down the kind of, maybe they're very old. I mean, I'm kind of getting old myself. If my wife said to me today, Jeremy, Norm, go go find your birth certificate, <laughs> I'd be hard-pressed. That thing is 67 years old. And, <laughs> Yeah. And I'm feeling older than that right now. But it, it, it's an old document. Where, where would I find it? Uh, my passports aren't valid anymore because I haven't traveled overseas for so long. So I couldn't even really use those at this point. And they certainly don't show my current address. My last passport was addressed in Belgium from the U.S. Embassy there. And so I look at that and I say, well, there are people who will have a hard time getting an ID. And I said, and so what's the purpose of this ID? He said, well, there's widespread voter fraud. I sat back and I said, well, I said, you're going to have to prove that to me. And I said, I'm not seeing any statistics that show there's widespread voter fraud. And he said, well, there were 19 people. And I said, well, 19 people out of millions and millions of voters is an infinitesimally small percentage yeah. of the vote. Is it really worth all of this trouble? Because 19 people may have cheated. And some of them may be inadvertently cheated, maybe not deliberately so. Mm-hmm. Well, he didn't have an answer for that. And I didn't have a good answer for him that satisfied him either. So he couldn't satisfy me with an answer, and I couldn't satisfy him, which brings us to not just the voting and the voter ID issue. It brings us to where this we've got this divide yeah. between Democrats and Republicans that's very untasteful and very unhealthy and uh, very distasteful. It seems to be more like team sports now. It's almost like, you know, my team's for this, so I'm for this. Yeah. Like there's not as much critical thinking, it seems, going on. And it's like then it's more about uh, when you're having a discussion with someone, it's more about figuring out how you can either convince it to yourself or convince it to someone else why you're justified. Yeah. I'll tell you, when I've, I've been canvassing quite a bit. Uh, we get out, well, right now we're increasing to two and three days a week, but we've been canvassing mostly on Saturdays for the last two months or so, two and a half months. And when I go to a door and I knock on the door, you know, we have a whole team, so some people never see me. And, you know, but, but when I went to a door here in Buncombe County, over by the, the Lutheran Church of the Nativity in that precinct, it's, it's an unorganized precinct, but I got to, so we went there. We thought we could maybe uh, meet some people that way. We went to doors that were mostly what we call drop-off Democrats, and Democrats who don't, don't vote in the off years. Mm-hmm. They vote in presidential years, but not the off years. And we want to ask them for their vote. And, we want to, and I think if somebody asks them, I believe they'll come out and vote. Well, I went to one door for a, a woman, and when you knock on the door, you don't know if they're going to want to have a long conversation or if they're just going to take your stuff and say, get lost, or, or gee, I'm busy doing something else. Can you come back another time? You don't know what they're going to say. Well, here's a lady who greets me. She's got two dachshunds barking behind her. She's got a pair of twins in the ba- in the kitchen, and they were yelling and screaming because uh, they wanted their lunch. And she was holding a baby on her hip. And I just said, well, let me just pass this to you. And, and uh, gosh, we've got an event coming up. Would you like to come to the event? Hope we'll see you there. And I started walking away, and she stayed at the door and stayed at the door. And I turned around, and I said, well, tell me something. What's really important to you as a voter? What do you really care about? And she became very quiet. And put her hand on her chin. She said, well, you know, I know I'm concerned, like a lot of people, concerned about health care and concerned about school and all that. She said, I'm, those are things I'm concerned about. She said, but what really upsets me is the way Democrats and Republicans treat each other. That, to her, was the seminal issue of this campaign. She's sick and tired. She was sick and tired, almost a direct quote there, sick and tired of the animosity mm-hmm. between the two parties she said, I just want them to talk to each other and make decisions that are good for us. Everybody can probably agree with this or that or come to consensus with each other. They can make agreements. So how does she decide then if she's upset with Democrats and Republicans alike for going at it? And and for the last two years, that's largely been what's been going on, this power struggle between the governor and the legislature. So how does she decide? I mean, um, and how do you how do you try to rise above that? Well, first of all, I'm 67 years old. I've had a full career. I'm not looking to be a career politician. That, that's number one. I'm not looking to garner power for myself. Mm-hmm. I'm looking, I, you know, I think I told you even two years ago, one of the big motivators for me was public schools and my concern about schools. I think we can find common ground with people. That's number one. Number two, I think people need to feel like they can trust legislators they can trust the people who are running for office to be honest and fair brokers with them when they, they answer questions. 
One of the things I do sometimes when I see, when I'm talking to a person who's concerned about that, is I say, well, you know, this person would probably really like to know that government is transparent and that she has accessible legislators. So I reached into my pocket, I pull out my phone, and I said, this is my phone. I don't have a secretary. Here's my telephone number. Anytime you have a question, you call it. Nobody else is going to pick that phone up but me. If I don't pick it up, leave me a message and I will call you back. And every so often people take me up on that. And uh, I'm really happy to do it. So to me, it's a matter of building trust. I don't want people to say, well, there's Norm Bossert, the Democrat, who's asking for something. I want them to say, there's Norm Bossert. He's somebody who will listen to us, Mm -hmm. who will talk to us. I think, and I hope I'm answering your question, but I think one of the ways we bridge this gap is by saying we're willing to listen. I'm willing to listen to Republicans when they have ideas that are different than mine. And I'm willing to listen to people in their homes and in the streets who have interests that might be different than mine and a view that might be different than mine. I don't assume, I prefer not to assume ill intent on the part of Republicans, for example. A lot of people do assume ill intent, and I'm sure they do the same when they talk about Democrats. My notion is is that all of us want to serve and we all go to government because we believe that that we have some some level of of expertise or some level of experience in life that prepares us to be good listeners, good debaters. I think I think good, honest, open debate is healthy in our country and in our state, in our communities, our counties. And I think if I can convince people that this campaign, my campaign is all about renewing trust in one another. And that's where I come from. We're trying to renew trust. So what I say to this lady, this very nice lady, is I don't want to be a politician like other politicians are that that concern you. I don't want you to be worried that what you read in the newspaper is going to embarrass you or upset you or make you feel. I want you to know that when I'm in office, I'm going to hold town halls. You're going to get to see me. You're going to have my phone number, and you can call me up if you have questions or concerns, and you'll get an answer. So I want to be accessible, I want to be transparent, and I also want to be willing to compromise with people, to reach consensus with people who don't necessarily agree with me. That's not always an easy thing to do. That's the hard work. When they did the budget this time, when the Republicans did the budget, they did it behind closed doors. They did it without any input from the Democratic Party. They didn't hold hearings. They didn't hold interviews. And one of the legislators I read about, uh, I won't mention his name here, it's not my opponent, Mm -hmm. but... This legislator, a Republican, said, well, it was, it was basically a, a faster and easier process this way. And, yeah, he knew that, that some people might be upset <laughs> that it had lack transparency. <laughs> oh, yeah. He said, but it was so much faster, you know. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he's right. You know, if, if you have a dictator, they can make decisions and we don't have to think about them or talk <laughs> right, about right, them. Right, right, right. But I think Republicans and Democrats are capable of holding open and good debate. And I think one of the things that will help is if in this next election we break this supermajority, I think that will encourage more debate and more discussion. Even if the Democrats don't hold the majority in the state, if the governor can veto something, then both sides, they need to realize that means they can come to the table. They have to come to the table. They have to talk to each other to develop legislation that's going to move the state forward. You know, Democrats have been out of power for so long and have very little power, can't even sustain vetoes right now. But how do you think Democrats have performed as the minority party? Have they, like, for instance, when I think that one of the reasons given by Republicans when they went into closed-door session to deal with the budget I'm not sure. Don't quote me on this. But I, th- I think that one of the reasons was they said, you know, we're not going to let Democrats, you know, offer up all these amendments that are basically like, you know, symbolic, like make us vote on something that's going to be a tough thing for the November elections. So do you think that Democrats have been legitimately trying to work with Republicans or have they been trying to make statement votes or just, you know, your honest assessment of your own party, I guess? Yeah. Well, the legislators I know, see, you know, when you run for office, you get to meet a lot of legislators. Yeah. People who, as a principal, I probably would never have met, mm-hmm. but I, you get to talk to people. And my sense of it is that we Democrats have some issues that we feel very strongly about. Medicaid expansion, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our legislature has thus far refused to expand Medicaid. And uh, to most of us who are Democrats, that's pretty upsetting. It's, you know, I, I think you probably know that 
we would basically not have to pay for Medicaid expansion for some three or four years, something like that. And uh, the money that would pay for it would be our own tax dollars that we sent to Washington would come back to us. I think that Democrats probably want to make a, you know, a what to do about that and say, well, Mm -hmm. what is going on? We've got half a million people without any kind of health care in our state. It's a huge number of people. There are neighbors. There are people living in rural areas. Our rural services are disappearing and... And that's really true. I mean, anybody can take a look and see that. I, I live in Transylvania County. Our little hospital there has, over the years, has provided fewer and fewer services. Mm-hmm. At any rate, just as an example, I think that's something Democrats would want to advocate pretty strongly for. Mm-hmm. And it, it probably could influence how they perceive or participate in the development of a bill, a bipartisan sort of bill. Mm-hmm. I'm still to this day uncertain that I understand why Republicans are so terribly opposed to it. I've, I've heard some people say it was some Republicans I know say, well, it's, it's a lot of paperwork and a lot. There's people's health and people's lives we're talking about. And mm-hmm. To me, paperwork is a, is a pain in the neck, but it's a pretty small thing compared to somebody's life. You know, you've had a chance to watch your opponent serve his constituents for the last two years. How do you think he's done? You know, before he was an appointee. So he had a little time in the legislature before that. He did, yeah. yeah. He had, the, the, it gave him a little bit of an advantage in the last election with incumbency. But I'll tell you, I, I've, I've met Mr. Edwards. I find him to be a very respectful and very nice man who probably disagrees with me about almost anything you can imagine politically. <laughs> I think if his constituency were just Republicans, I think those Republicans would say he's doing a good job. Uh, but his constituency isn't just Republicans. It's also Democrats and also unaffiliated voters. And we Democrats don't feel like he's done a good job. Uh, we we certainly don't feel represented. I mean, when when you go to the legislature and Democrats basically are uninvolved in decision-making, uh, I, I see that as a big problem. And so my concerns are he has, he has certainly supported a budget that I think I see lots of problems with. He seems pretty contented with... Uh, the way education funding is going, and I'm not. Um, matter of fact, teachers are not. Uh, our school administrators are not. Just in general, I'm sure there are some who might might disagree with that, but mostly they're not. So I think there are lots of things that he supports that that I wish he wouldn't. Uh, I'd like to see the DEQ, the Department of Environmental Quality, get its money back. <laughs> mm. They've been cut by some sixteen million dollars, and. Uh, it's hard for them to do their job without adequate staff and without adequate materials. Our teachers are challenged. They don't have the stuff they need. He would argue that, well, the budget for our teachers is better than it's ever been before. For our schools, is better than it's ever been before. It's arguable. But about 60% of our budget goes to education. Unfortunately, $15 million of that is going to pay for vouchers for private schools that are totally unaccountable. Well, if that $15 million was back in the regular budget, our teachers and our administrators and our school supplies and all that stuff and buildings, roofs, electrical work, whatever, would no doubt be in much better shape than they are now. So, yeah, they spend a lot of money on education, but it's not necessarily going where it needs to go. And you're you're the perfect person to talk to about that since you spent so long in education as a school principal and, and now a substitute teacher, of course. <laughs> yeah. And- so we had this Red for Ed march. Really, I believe it was like 20,000 20, think. Yeah, uh, people marched on Raleigh. Uh, teachers, educators. Uh, okay, so why? So why did they march when the Republicans are saying, you know, we've raised teacher pay all this amount? They don't seem to have satisfied educators. And could you speak for them? Well, I can. I think I can speak for educators. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what I did a few months back. I met with. Uh, Leanne Delph Earls and three or four other educators. And I said, you know, I've been a principal all these years, and I think I know what, what goes on in school, and I think I know what people need and what our teachers need in the way of materials and supplies. And I said, what are, what are your big concerns? Most of us who run for office think that their biggest concern is how much money they get paid. And that would be a mistake, an, an error in judgment on our part. What I heard over and over again is we need more counselors in schools. We need more nurses in our schools. We need more uh, supplies in our schools. We need more social workers in our schools. And, I, and we had this conversation. It went on for about 45 minutes, and we talked about mental health issues in our schools, all those kinds of things. 
And I came to the conclusion that, yeah, we need to pay our teachers a decent wage, but that never once, never once was the issue they discussed. Now, as far as teacher pay is concerned, that didn't end up as part of that conversation. I'm really glad the legislature has invested some more money in our younger teachers. The problem is, is they've completely ignored our senior teachers, and they're doing away with benefits, retirement benefits uh, for our teachers, particularly health insurance. Mm -hmm. um, they don't give our retirees even a, a, an annual look, even a look at a cost of living adjustment. Uh, the retirees, like myself, will get a 1% cost of living adjustment situationally. It, it, it'll be for this year. They're not necessarily going to look at it every year the way they really should. I mean, inflation happens, and it's happening right now, as, as anybody who buys gasoline would tell you. Mm -hmm. So um, from my point of view, a lot of things have not been done that need to happen to make teachers feel like they have a career. If you know you've pretty much maxed out on your pay after 15 years, well, pay is not going to be your incentive for staying another 15 years. Uh, raises are very minimal after that. Our senior teachers are some of our most valuable employees. They're experienced. They're, they've, uh, they know how to work the ropes. They know how to bring young teachers up because they remember what, what, what it was like for them in that first uh, year or two. Right. Uh, right. The other problem is, is that the end game in terms of pay is equally as important as the beginning game. If they, somebody says, well, I can start in Virginia $37,000 a year, say, or $40,000 a year. But when I'm finished, I'll be making $65,000 a year or 70000 If I stay in North Carolina, well, I'll start at about $35,000 a year. And at the end, I'll have maybe $50,000 a year. Mm -hmm. It's a tremendous impact on what kind of retirement income that person's going to be getting. You don't think about that much when you're in your first five or six years of teaching. Right. You're in survival mode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happens after that, though, is... People aren't stupid. They look and say, well, where am I going to be when I retire? Mm -hmm. Well, gee, if I go down to Greenville, I can have a few thousand dollars more than I've got here. Or if I go up to Virginia or to Tennessee, I'll be making more money when I'm done teaching. Mm -hmm. You know, when I've done my 30 years, I will have, uh, you know, a much better pension, a much better future. So I think those are things that, that uh, our legislators need to understand, and I don't think they do. I think they're too focused in a way on pay, not focused enough on the career and I don't think they're focused enough on the things that make teachers feel successful in their schools, like having enough personnel. I hear about personnel. I hear about school supplies. I hear about teachers uh, having to go into their own pockets mm -hmm. to get supplies for schools. Of course, we've been hearing a lot about school safety because of tragedies recently. Yeah. Let's focus on safety for a second. Did, how do you think the legislature responded to the shootings? Because they did allocate some money, I believe, for counselors and and, and mm -hmm. stuff. Did they go far enough? Uh, how do you think they did? Well, I don't think they've gone far enough, uh, clearly. I think, uh, I think every school, no matter how small it is, needs to have at least one counselor on staff. And uh, we're not there yet. I was very grateful. Uh, David Thompson, who is the director of S uh, student services in Buncombe County while I was there, uh, wrote a wonderful grant. And in this grant, he was able to fund a full-time counselor from my school by Black Mountain Elementary. And uh, we had a wonderful counselor, a woman named Jessica, who was just extraordinary, uh, and did a wonderful job. And she got to be full-time with us because of this grant, which I think is probably long gone. And then the county had to decide if they were going to continue funding that position. Mm -hmm. I've been gone a year, so I don't know what their final decision was. Oh. They have granted, uh, and I heard this this morning on NPR. Hey. Uh, <laughs> speak of the devil. But uh, I heard uh, on my way in this morning that uh, Buncombe County, for example, has been given a grant to increase the number of uh, school resource offices in our elementary schools. And that's wonderful. But the county commission had to agree to match part of that grant. Now, I'm thinking about counties across our state that couldn't afford to match a grant. Mm-hmm. That could be a problem. And when that happens, we need the legislature to be able to step in and say, okay, such and such a county is a county that, that's got you know, low wealth and they're not able to afford to match our grant, but they still need additional safety. Mm -hmm. um, I think we need to keep our staffs well-trained for emergencies. I think that needs to happen. And mostly, I think, uh, I know in Buncombe County, we worked real hard at, uh, at tabletop activities as well as actual drills. Mm -hmm. to prepare kids. There's some controversy over the kinds of drills that schools are doing now. People are 
kind of re-looking at that, but that's a side issue. The thing is our schools are still trying to do everything they can to keep kids safe and to have the community feel safe. Um, I think all of our doors in our schools need to be equipped properly so that uh, it's more difficult for people to get into the building and and maybe even easier under some circumstances to get out of the building. Right, Um, yeah. One of the things that has always uh, that always sort of troubled me, we used to do these tabletop activities and we always came to the same conclusion. The what if is what's really going to happen. I mean, we can prepare and prepare and prepare, but then something's going to happen that's out of whack with what you prepared for and sure. how flexible will you be able to be. You know, I, I was over at one of the high schools in another community the other day and because they've got the doors locked down during the school day, which is great. And you go up to the door and you ring a bell and there's a little camera there and people see you in the camera and they say, who, you know, what, what's your business basically? Why do yeah. you want to come to the building? And you tell them, I'm here to get some papers signed. And then you open the door and somebody slips in behind you. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, <laughs> Who yeah, didn't yeah. get checked in. Right. Who didn't get looked at, didn't get asked the same question. And people are pretty quick to do that. Uh, they don't want to say, well, you go ahead and close the door and, and mm. I'll stand here and ring it again in two seconds. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and, and people, people who open the door, the initial ones, tend to be polite to the person who's next to them. And they'll say, oh, please come in. Uh, so that person gets to decide who's safe to come in the building and not, not necessarily the person in the office. So we need to find a way to more closely monitor who is coming and going from schools. Our older schools also, uh, gosh, some of them have so many entrances. And how in the heck do you monitor all those entrances? It's not easy to do. Uh, and even the schools that have cameras like T.C. Robertson and stuff, you can't just sit there staring at cameras all day seeing who's coming in the building and what's going on in the halls. You need to be out and about. You know, our administrators need to be in the hallways and the, the, the SROs need to be in the hallways talking to people. And here they are with these lovely cameras. So what are the cameras good for? Well, they're good for looking at after something has happened and seeing, well, what was going on. I hate to bring up the, like, the red meat one, you know, like the, the question that gets everybody kind of riled up. But but what about that idea of arming teachers? I know there was one proposal to, like, give teachers better pay if they went through some sort of firearms training and then they would have a firearm in the classroom. What do you think about this? Well, first, I've heard both sides of the argument. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ironically, I've heard it not just from Republicans. I've heard the other side of the argument from uh, Democrats as well. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I would shudder to think of teachers being armed in the classroom. Uh, There was an incident uh, in one of the counties in which I worked uh, a few years ago where a school resource officer was disarmed by a student. (laughs) Yeah, I was... Well, if you can disarm a trained police officer, how well prepared will a teacher be to, to be disarmed? Also, if Same. a teacher's job is then to take out a weapon and to find a weapon in their classroom that may be locked up, leave the classroom to go out and seek out the person, leaving the kids behind while they go out and seek out a person who may be dangerous to the school. Who's taking care of the kids? I think it's a terrible mistake to do that. I think it's it's not really why teachers go into the profession. Uh, I think teachers, most teachers I know, their instincts are all about protecting kids, not being the ones to go out of the classroom to go seek somebody, but rather mm-hmm. to keep the kids quiet and safe in the room. Um, so from my point of view, I think it's a, it's a big mistake. And like I said, I've heard the other side of the argument too. You know, if... if Somebody's in the classroom, blah, blah, blah. What do you do? You know, you have to, or somebody comes in the room, that teacher can grab a gun and shoot that person or, you know, or something. That that would automatically solve the problem. Well, maybe that's true. I don't, <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I'm opposed to it. Mm-hmm. I, I, there, there are some people who just don't need to have guns, first of all. And second mm-hmm. of all, I think the teachers need to be focused totally on keeping their kids safe and managed and not be thinking about leaving a classroom or leaving the workspace with a weapon to 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 be a guard for the kids in that sense and in all your years of uh, educating oh, did you have any really scary situations that you had to deal with <laughs> well one that was potentially scary yeah it was almost <laughs> other than substitute teaching on me <laughs> substitute teaching is really scary <laughs> but um yeah boy i know I, I don't even want to be armed for that don't forget that <laughs> but um we had an incident at my school and I was so proud of my staff that day, by the way. We, yep. we had an incident where my custodian called me about five thirty, six o'clock in the morning and said, Mr. Bossert, there's a, there's a locked box chained to our building in the back of the building. Well, I was already in my car headed here. And I said, well, what do you, is it identified in any way? Did, did anybody know that we were going to have this box attached to the building? 
And, uh, and my custodian, a fellow named Stanley, wonderful guy, said, no, no, Mr. Bossard, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, it's, it seems really odd to me that it's there. Mm-hmm. And uh, with, with things the way they are, you take that kind of seriously. So we, we were real concerned about it. Uh, from my car, I called up the superintendent. The superintendent, uh, Tony Baldwin, did a great, great job under the circumstance. He was, he was actually out at a, a gym uh, doing exercises, I guess, before school. And uh, he, he said, uh, well, here's what I'm going to do. And I said, well, here's what I'm going to do. So I, we both laid out our plan for how to handle the situation. And by the time I got to the school, 911 had been contacted. The sheriff's department was there. The Black Mountain police were there. They were directing traffic. Uh, we redirected all of our buses off campus, all of our car riders off campus to the primary school, mm-hmm. excuse me, the primary school next door. And uh, the, kids were, the kids were sent there. The teachers, God bless those people, those teachers. You know, that could be a real panicky, upset sort of situation. But the way they handled it was remarkable. They started organizing their kids by class and started teaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there they were in the cafeteria with 220 kids, and they're running their classes just like it's a regular school day, just with no walls. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, was, I was so impressed with them. Uh, what a great job they did. Anyway, so as the day went on, we were waiting for the bomb-sniffing dog to come to the school because mm-hmm. we assumed the worst, that, that we had a bomb behind our building, and uh, it, it would be devastating so we had to keep everybody safe we blocked the roads off yeah i had one teacher who stayed to direct traffic to let people know who didn't get the message uh the telephonic message we do we were all pretty scared mm-hmm. we were pretty scared and pretty upset we had a lot of police officers there the fire department was there dr baldwin our superintendent showed up and uh, finally the dog came and guy came he was he dressed himself all in this bomb sort of suit a protective yeah. suit of some sort and they went around to the back of the building. The dog sniffed the box. And he said, well, the dog's not smelling anything. He said, let's clip the clipped cables and see what's inside. So he went and did that. We all backed off several hundred yards just in case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he made some snide remark about, tell my wife and kids I love them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and anything goes wrong. And you know, we laugh about it now, but I can sure he was not joking then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Neither yeah. were we. Right. It was pretty serious. And uh, he popped the back, <laughs> the back of that box open. And he looked inside. He said, turned around and everybody said, well, you've got yourself about a 50-foot black hose sitting in this case. What did he have? A 50-foot long hose. Oh. That was, had been put in the box by Black Mountain Parks and Rec, who do oh. our garden program with us. Oh, okay. And they wanted to have a hose handy to them. Well, they didn't tell us they were going to do that. Well, the kids, the kids came back. And here's, here was, here's really the point of the whole thing. It was a dangerous and scary situation for our kids, our teachers, our school. Our parents were concerned. The parents all did the right thing. Uh-huh. The kids all were cooperative as can be. Um, our teachers were calm and in control and handled everything really well, just as absolutely professionally as they could. And I realized that that's because our school, like so many others, prepares for unusual events, prepares for things to go wrong. Mm -hmm. And we're ready all the time. Our school was ready all the time. And it was was an extremely pleasing moment in a way that started off really upsetting and pretty scary. Mm -hmm. Everybody did what they were supposed to do. You know, it's not like somebody jumped through a window or pulled a gun out of their purse or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Everybody did what they were supposed to do. We People kept got, the kids they were safe. calm. Everybody was calm. Yeah. The kids were calm because the teachers were calm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Baldwin was, uh, he did his job. I did mine. I was very, very proud of the job I did that day. Mm-hmm. It was years and years of training uh, yeah. that, that came to fruition at that moment. So, yeah, we've had a scary moment. and. Yeah. People do the right things when they're practiced in how to do the right things. And uh, my staff was. Yeah. And uh, I was very proud of them. Yeah. Well, um, bringing it back around to politics and, you know, you, you, you kind of touched on this earlier uh, that you said when, you know, you talked to this woman and her main concern was just the battling between Democrats and Republicans. Now, you've had a chance to campaign for a little while now. What do you think's on people's minds more generally than that one specific, and that may be it, but but what do you think people are really thinking about in this election and in your district? Well, I will tell you what. <laughs> yeah. It might surprise you, but there are three issues that we talk about all the time that people bring to us. First one is health care. A lot of people are concerned about health care. The second one 
our schools. They're concerned with proper funding for our schools. And the third one is jobs, not just any kind of job. They want good paying jobs. People have jobs now, but they're not good paying jobs, and they don't get them out of poverty. They, they matter of fact, they keep them in poverty, some mm-hmm. of those jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the biggies. But if you went down to Saluda a few months ago, Everything was about the firing range that the, that the sheriff wanted to put into, and the sheriff and the county commission wanted to put in Saluda. That was the most important issue on those people's minds that, that, that day. Uh-huh. Uh, down in Henderson County, again, if you want to talk about widening of uh, Canuga Road uh, and the impact that's going to have on the community. If you want going back to Henderson County again, they're building this new Edneyville Elementary School, a beautiful new facility that's long overdue for Edneyville. This facility is pretty much all put together, but they're having a big fight over do we, do, do we attach to the sewer system or do we have a septic system? Mm-hmm. Bo Caldwell was so funny about it. And we, he talked to me about that, and he said, you know, I know everything that's going into that school. He said, I know every, every wall, every piece of roofing, everything. He said, but honest to goodness, if a kid sits on a pot, I can't tell you what's going to happen when he flushes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. People care about these local issues. What's happening on 191 and what's happening on Sweeten Creek Road? And what about the unbridled growth almost of, of uh, apartment complexes and hotels in this area? All of these things are having a real day-to-day impact on the mm-hmm. lives of our community. Yeah, yeah. And they make a difference. Yeah. Um, it's a very conservative district. Yes. The last election was very tough, uh, really up and down the board, though, for, for Democrats. I mean, uh, Democrats won the governorship, but not much else, it seemed. Um, yeah. So the district's demographics perhaps were insurmountable last time. Are they still? No. No, part of it is because we have new people moving into the community. So some mm-hmm. of the demographics are looking a little bit better than they did before. Mm-hmm. The other piece of it is, is you know, in, in looking at, at some polling that's been done, there's an awful lot of enthusiasm from Democrats for this mm-hmm. coming election, a lot of energy and a lot of uh, desire to see things change. And uh, we think the Democrats are going to turn out this time. Truly, in our own studies of our campaign, we believe if we can get the Democrats out, we can win this election. Mm-hmm. And that's looking back at past off-year elections. What, what was the turnout and who showed up and who didn't? And we believe if we can show up like we did in, say, the Obama years, and the Republicans can show up like they do in off-year elections, that we've got this iced. I mean, we feel like we can win this. And you're talking about your district? My district, yeah. yes. Okay. Uh, particularly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're very encouraged. We think there's a lot going on. We think, uh, I don't know, I, I, I almost... I'm getting tired of the term blue wave. Mm-hmm. But if energy counts for anything, it's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it because when I used to campaign two years ago, I'd go to places and there'd be two or three people there to talk to. And now I've got small armies of people every place I go. Mm-hmm. Getting out, talking to, from my own campaign, I'm talking to a lot more unaffiliated people, a lot more Republicans as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain amount of concern and discontent. And these issues like health care and schools – they speak to everybody, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't make a difference. Everybody's concerned about what's going to happen to their children and grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Yeah. I'm going to ask every candidate about Donald Trump because I think it's a, it's a key factor in this race, mm-hmm. or could be. But is he? Is he a key factor in this race? And, and what are you hearing uh, in your district? Well, first of all, I will tell you in my campaign, I don't talk about Donald Trump at all. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I need to. I don't think he's got anything to do with what I'm trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I don't, think, uh, I don't think he has anything to do with what Chuck Edwards is trying to accomplish for that matter either. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that's, that's my sense of it. Mm-hmm. I see Donald Trump as, as a, uh, a lightning rod. And if, if I go someplace and start talking about him, that's all people are going to talk about. I want to talk about our roads, and I want to talk about mm-hmm. health care and our schools. I don't want to talk about Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, anybody who knows me knows there's no mystery about how I feel about Donald Trump. <laughs> but but uh, it's, in, it's not relevant. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, for better or for worse, whether we like it or not, he is the president of the United States right now. And uh, uh, that's, that's all there is to it. I mean, how long he'll be, I don't know. But, but he is right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we have to find a way to work in an environment that's 
at the top of government, we've got uh, Donald Trump, and we have to learn how to work in that environment. Now, when you said uh, there's a lot of energy on the Democratic side, do you think it's because of Trump? Do you think it's because of the legislature? Um, or do you think it is these issues? Do you, what, what do you think? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, yes, yes, and yes. Yeah, they're, they're all yeah. yes answers. Yeah. I think it might be because of Donald Trump. I think on some level it might be because of uh, our own state legislature. I think people are concerned with the way things are getting done right now. I think I think even even very moderate thinking people would like to see more balance in our government. And uh, I think the issues resonate with people. I think people are concerned with health care. I, I think it's a real issue. I mean, I know people who, who are expected to come up with like $2,000 a month without subsidies mm-hmm. th- that were promised them during the Obama years because they've been cut and cut and cut. They can't afford it. So here are these people, a perfect example, people in their mid-50s husband and wife who I met, who started off with subsidized ACA care. And the ACA back then was making it possible for them at $40 per person to have decent health insurance. And then Donald Trump became president and uh, the battles began and laws started to be altered and budgeting started to be altered and subsidies started to disappear. And all of a sudden it was $200 a month and now it's $2,000 a month. And so they have elected not to have insurance. I'm 67 years old. I have Medicare, thank goodness. And matter of fact, if you ever meet anybody with Medicare, ask them if they want to go back to what they had before. Mm-hmm. I can guarantee what they'll say. <laughs> Absolutely. And why wouldn't we want the same thing for everybody else? Right, right. And that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. And, and uh, so that particular issue is... Is a big one to people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I do hear about that. Yeah. Well, Norm Bassa, we've talked for almost an hour, which is quite a while. <laughs> so I'll give you the last word. What, what do you want the people of your district to hear from you? What do you want them to know? I'd like them to know that, I'm, that when I become their senator. And you said when. I said when, yeah. yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I've got my own little blue wave going on inside of me, I guess. <laughs> but uh, when I become their senator, they're going to hear from me. They're going to see me out in public. I'm not just going to be hanging out with Democrats. I'm going to go and open up uh, town halls uh, to anybody who'd like to attend. I'm going to make my phone number available to anybody who wants to call. I'll keep a newsletter going so people can see what's going on to the best of my ability and to the best of my office's ability as, as a state senator. I'll have an administrative assistant who'll help me with that. And I'd like them to know that this government, a government that I'm part of, is going to be transparent. It's going to be inclusive. It's going to give people an opportunity for input. That we're not going to do things behind closed doors. I'm, I am not going to be Alexander Hamilton with doing whatever you do behind those closed doors. Mm-hmm. I want to be in the room where it happens, but I want the window open and mm-hmm. I want the doors open. And I'd like my voters to know that whether they're Democrats or Republicans or unaffiliated voters, they are all going to be my constituents, not just the Democrats. Everyone will be my constituent, and I will listen to what everybody has to say. Well, thank you so much for coming in. You're I welcome. appreciate it. I appreciate it. I've had a good time. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs>